0: Hello, everyone. My name is Justin Bayerjohn and I am Dr. VR. And for this fifth episode, I have the honor of having Curtis Hickman, who is an award-winning illusionist, creative director and director, as well as the inventor of hyper reality and co-founder of The Void. Hi, Curtis. Welcome to Dr. VR. Hi, thank you for having me. No problem. Thank you for accepting the invitation. It's an honor. Um, just to begin with, can you tell us a bit about your professional background?
1: Uh, yeah, my uh, professional history is kind of divided into uh, just a few parts. I um, was a professional uh, illusionist, uh, both uh, and and uh, magician for many years. Uh, I published classic books on magic, not my books. I republished others' classic books on magic, uh, as well as sort of really try to promote the idea of magic theory and um, uh, trying to uh really help the magic community uh, think more critically about uh how magic works and why it works and um it's always been a big passion of mine uh then uh, i was also in visual effects Uh, i was the visual effects supervisor on a number of films as well as uh did just a kind of day in day out job for a while of, of motion graphics and visual effects for many years and uh Then I met uh, a gentleman by the name of Ken Schneider. I was working on some of his films and uh, uh, eventually started working for uh, one of his companies. And he said to me one day that he wanted to uh, get into the uh, location-based entertainment business. And I said, that sounds awesome. I would love to be a part of that. I designed some uh, illusions for him for for parties and things that he had done at his house uh, and uh, things like Pepper's Ghost and some window shadow plays, things like that. And uh, this was a combination of sort of that digital art and the and the magic arts, and then we kind of put them together to make these sort of physical magical representations. Uh, and uh, I, I love that. Um, and so he said, "Like, well, we're just going to build this theme park called Evermore." And uh, uh, for a couple of years, I worked on that as far as helping to design and sort of blue sky out what that concept would be, developing a number of different illusions. And uh, I worked. Uh, Worked on that full time for 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 a while, and uh we met James Jensen, and James had this idea of of incorporating VR in a very physical way. Um, this was back in twenty fourteen, and um, we, uh, we it sounded good, so we made a prototype. And as you can imagine, the this concept of digital and physical especially when it came to The Void, this this virtual world that has these physical properties was one that was just really suited to uh, my skill set. And so I uh, became the chief creative officer of The Void and uh, we started uh, making experiences and uh, I guess the rest is history. It, it did really well until COVID showed up, So, <laughs> um, but uh, it was a blast. I, I loved it. Uh, working at the void and those experiences and even today it's uh, there's a void 2.0 that's that's trying to get
0: spun up and I'm, I'm helping with that project as well I'm already excited about it and to be honest i I miss the void dearly I remember yeah. uh planning uh because I'm from Toronto and uh, we had two void locations here and yeah, yeah and uh, I remember I was uh in this uh, course university course called future cinema and I talked to my uh, professor, Caitlin Fisher, uh, who I basically brought up the idea of having a field trip to the void. And I used the void as one of my presentations and one of my the final paper I worked on for this particular course. And we all gathered, all get together and all went to the void. And it, we had a blast. It was fantastic. That's great. And uh, That's you great. mentioned 2014 that it's, it's way before uh, the mainstream. Uh, start of virtual reality. How was it like back then to work on such a huge project uh, that was really ahead of its time, which I believe the void is still is ahead of its time right now
1: yeah we we were working on you know developer kits and um, uh, tracking for location-based VR wasn't a thing. we were we were trying to find our own solutions. I, I remember the first solution we tried was magnetic tracking. And, uh, and it worked well enough that the, kind of our initial prototype, we just had, we had one wall in a basement, uh, set up and, uh, there were a couple of computers down there and we put mag, just the, the tracker on top of the headset at the front of the headset and then, um, other points around the room and it kind of worked, you know, but there was always, there's, there was a lot of weird field variance and, and, and warping that would occur and we couldn't figure out for the longest time until, uh, uh, well, the engineers were were stumped by it. And they're like, oh, I wonder if the electromagnetic field of the headset itself was causing problems. And sure enough, that's exactly what it was. Because uh, and, and, you know it, it tracked fine on things that were uh, uh, that, that weren't electronic, but uh, but it was like I said, good enough that we got the uh, the, the first version down. And then we uh, we made up uh, backtop computers, is what we called them. Uh, they were uh, we 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 would take laptops and rip them apart and build housings for them. And then, uh, put them on the back of, uh, backpack rigs, like hiking backpack rigs and, and sort of cable them together. And, uh, that that was the first walk around, uh, PC that we had made. And, um, and it was all, it was so run and gun back in those days, just really trying to figure out what to do because it didn't exist Uh, in a commercial way, you know, uh, And uh, so it was was great. I mean, it was it was one of those problems, too, with or because we were starting and there wasn't an industry for it already. uh, I was like, well, we're going to need a haptic vest that that works within our ecosystem and nothing existed. So we invented one and we're going to need we need uh, our, our computer was made ultimately from the BIOS up like it was just a custom built PC uh for us that people were wearing on their backs and same yep. thing with the headset everything everything except for the actual optics themselves which was the uh uh oculus for uh, for many uh, many years it's just we'd rip them apart and we'd put them into our headset and that and that's kind of what we did wow um it was yeah in fact we launched i think it was the dk2 that the original ghostbusters launched with because that nothing yeah. there was nothing else we could there was nothing else that was all what we had
0: yeah it's yeah. the prototype that facebook bought from Palmer lucky uh absolutely
1: yeah i mean exactly it was, it was basically that yeah exactly it was the second iteration of that prototype that that had come out and we were using yeah uh that's what we were using and then it's funny because what we we were launching and, and the oculus was about to come out uh officially but it was like obviously you have to do these things months and months in advance uh, yeah, yeah, so it was just running in and, and changing it but but it worked i mean we launched uh in uh It was uh, 2016 when we did our first uh, public location. That was in New York at Madame Tussauds. Yeah. And um, to rave reviews. But uh, I mean, we're in the background just like running around with
0: duct tape and chewing gum, trying to make sure the whole thing holds together. Um, It was quite the experience. I'm sure it was. But what were your motivations with the Void? Like, were you content with what VR was offering to its users in terms of experiences at the time?
1: Um, you know, it wasn't so much as trying to fix VR because, especially when we started, VR was like, like walk around this, uh, you know, Italian villa. Like, I mean, there, there was, there was, uh, it was, we're sitting this roller coaster. Uh, and it was really simple stuff. Um, it was more about trying to fix uh location-based entertainment at large. Um, we. I love going to theme parks. I Have my whole life. Um, uh, but one of the problems of course is, is when you're trying to really get immersed in a theme park, whether that's on a ride or just in like some dressed up land that they'd created, you don't, um, you, you don't necessarily, you, you have to put a lot of suspension to disbelief and just kind of play pretend as you go through it. You've got this amazing immersive surrounding, but you're also with a billion tourists and people selling churros and, uh, you know, whatever else that, that is fighting against the immersion right. um and uh so as much as i love those things i, was, I always wanted that holodeck experience which is so kind of uh a trite now to even mention because i feel like everybody talks about oh the holodeck you know we all grew up well it's the, the fantasy holodeck. one you know but that's it right i mean that's yeah. it's like that's the goal is i just want that i want to be able to exactly. live in this impossible world and live in these impossible amazing stories and not have to feel like work so hard at the uh, at, at suspending my disbelief, um, and so ultimately that was our goal. How do we do that? And VR ended up being the tool that made the most sense for that. Um, we were trying to do things like that with Evermore. Throughput gets really hard, but you can with VR, you can make throughput much better. Um, and so it solved it solved a lot of problems. It, it, you know, designing magic and uh, making the experiences dynamic. All these sort of things were just we just could check off all these boxes that were originally goals for Evermore. That uh, the void um was able to kind of answer very directly
0: of course what did you want to improve at the time would you say you succeeded with these improvements when it comes to everything you just mentioned in relation to Uh, yeah um, yeah yeah you know
1: yeah 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 we wanted to so we wanted to improve immersion i mean that was like that was number one it was like how do we if we're gonna make a holiday but we don't have force fields and we don't can't control gravity we can't you know How do we, how do we really immerse people? Um, And that's, uh, that's really the beginnings of where, like, where the book I wrote, uh, Hyper Reality, The Art of Designing Impossible Experiences, uh, uh, available now at Amazon. Uh, See see how I did that little plug there? It's good. Um, But it's kind of where that book really starts is because it's like, that's when we started saying, okay, let's start testing things, testing things, testing things. How do we get people more immersed, more immersed, more immersed? What do we need to do? and what don't we need to do? And and we made lots of mistakes, but we also discovered lots of lots of cool, fun things. Um, and, uh, you know, things like sensory concordance was critical. The second, like your senses say something should be here, but there isn't something there, then it really pulls you out. Uh, likewise, if you're, um, um, but other things like sensory fidelity, it wasn't as critical, which is to say if you're in an environment uh, and, uh, uh, the wall has a certain texture on it as long as the wall has a texture on it that is kind of close your brain's fine with it so the visual matches oh and it has a texture and there is a wall here so that's good enough um and so kind of playing off of those boundaries we were able to play with space and and overlapping volumes and and uh a lot of kind of trickery to take advantage of those little situations so we learned a lot in the early days and Uh, and it was really trying to improve someone's immersion in a, in a space and make them feel like they're part of a story that that was our ultimate goal. And and I feel like we definitely succeeded.
0: Definitely. And how would you describe working with VR technologies and mechanics, you know, like 360 environments, haptics, six degrees of freedom. How did you approach them at the time, but also along the way?
1: Yeah. So I, uh, How did we approach uh, just dealing with the the surrounded nature of of the experiences themselves? Yes, and creating
0: basically what 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 did not exist, like you mentioned previously. Mm. You know, it
1: was it's you know it's I mean a lot of the technology to do all that stuff um, already existed, which say a lot of the heavy lifting as far as like all right, we just need a game engine that's gonna that and and everything's already three D and and they're already uh thankfully were set up well enough that we could could run vr on them and uh uh so like that big heavy lift was done uh and then it became more of uh all right so what do we use for directing the guest and how do we get people to move through the experience in a natural way uh that uh, where they don't get lost and they can really understand it and so then you kind of look over at uh, other immersive forms of entertainment um Things like immersive theater, and say, Okay, well, what do they do? How do they get by? What is like a haunted house? Do what do they, you know, uh, in a haunted house, uh, you know, they always scare forward and they will always light where you need to go next. So it's people just kind of like moths follow the light through a haunted house and then they yeah. get scared forward, so they're always moving along. Uh, and uh, you can take that concept, and we would just literally do, we would just even very literally say, Okay, we're going to make it darker in this room, we're going to make a light, and people will follow the light. Um, or we will. Uh, have a dangerous event occur in the space that they're in in order to scare them out of the space or to motivate them out of that space. Um, and, and so we would kind of start there and then we would look at, well, what are other ways that we can motivate people into other spaces and what are their visual cues that can be used to help guide them to where they need to go, uh, both uh,
0: directionally as well as narratively. Absolutely. And I remember when, when you enter the void, you're being, the experience is being introduced to you um, by someone who works there, could, already putting you into context. And that's something that I never experienced before. Because when I strap on my headset, I don't have this introduction, you know, I'm just like, press start to play and here we go. But with the void, you're really taken by the hand and we're showing you what's going to happen already. It's all about being immersed. And that's something that I really appreciated. So you mentioned Thanks. you took this from immersive theater, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, the, I mean, there's a lot of interesting tricks and things that immersive productions will do to help get people comfortable and into an experience. And I there's a thing I call the path of conviction uh, where the goal was to put people on a path where they could uh, uh, one step at a time, be more and more uh, convinced that the impossible world that they're in is real. And but we wouldn't start that path uh, after the VR was on. We would try and start that path as early as possible. And uh, it was it was with Ghostbusters, for example, that we um, people would go in, uh, but the story wasn't very self evident. And it uh, was Ivan Reitman that said to us, "You guys, you need an establishing shot. You need a way for them to understand where they're at and what they're what they're doing." And we had a small sort of a like, "Here's your goals. Here's what you're going to do." But later on, we actually we 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 would have people step into a special room that would show them a video, just like, I mean, just like you would at a Disney park. Right. I mean, it was, we're going to, but it was, we were even more focused where you're in a dark room with a big screen and we're really going to pre-show this for you so that you, you get uh, two things out of it. You get the general idea of the story. And most importantly, you get the critical thought, which was uh, my word for uh, 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 or my term for the thing you have to know. And, and it can be, it'll be different for every experience uh, you know, in, in, uh, sometimes it's very simple and sometimes it's complex in, in Nicodemus, the critical thought was you need to escape. You're going to go here to escape, which is an ironic thing I think to do to mm-hmm. somebody who's like, I need you to go there so you can leave. Um, you know, but the, the, the subtext of that was that you're, you're really trying to explore and explain what's happening in here. Just make sure you don't get caught by the demon Nicodemus. Don't get caught. Agree. Uh, and, uh, and that was it. And we would repeat that critical thought several times. People understood. And likewise, in um, uh, Ghostbusters, uh, you know, you need to go catch ghosts. I mean, it's, it's very clear and simple. You just got to go catch ghosts. And uh, then there's a background story to that. Most people will forget. Uh, uh, but uh, because people have sort of this, this narrative blindness, they have, the, you know, they're just overwhelmed by everything that's happening around them that they, they just kind of lose track of the story, which is totally fine. As long as they remember, we're here to catch a ghost. Uh, just exactly. let's go get that ghost.
0: There's yeah. a main objective.
1: The main objective, yeah, and uh, as long as that's that's understood, and but sometimes it, sometimes it might not even be an objective. Sometimes it might be something that's uh, you're just here to enjoy the peaceful environment, and uh, I mean, I guess you could call that an objective, but really it's like passive kind of a thing. You're not you're not aiming at something. You're just going in and experience it. But you have to understand that that there isn't an objective that that is the goal. Is there's nothing, and so as as long as that critical thought gets communicated, we would be okay. And so. We got we like experiences, I guess, over time that path of conviction and, and getting people to feel more immersed and starting with that pre-show video and uh, even little things like matching the ether, which is that first room you step into, like yeah. really trying to match that look to the virtual look so that when you do put your visor down, it's like, oh, I can clearly see I'm in the same space. Yeah, that was amazing. And- I remember that yeah exactly so it, it, that that continuum and and nowadays i mean uh you know I, I like the idea of using pass-through and slowly introducing more and more of the virtual until it's all virtual and and then and then stepping you out of that again uh there's a lot more, lot more fun you can have with that path of conviction as well absolutely
0: i agree now i have absolutely no background in magic uh, nor in creating special and and, and visual effects but however I love the magic of cinema and all its make believe which is one of my main research interests and I'm also an avid video gamer and I believe The Void is the perfect blend of both and I also uh, truly believe The Void makes complete sense in VR because making people truly think that we are that they are physically moving in different environments you know taking elevators feeling weather and temperature changes and 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 physically interacting with the elements that we are seeing in VR is one very special trick. (laughs) And now that way of blending real world physical environments with a unique untethered VR setup that uses real-time interactive effects is something you named hyper-reality. And can you tell us more about this concept and its development?
1: Yeah, um, the original concept behind hyper-reality was basically it was, it was kind of marketing came and said, Hey, we need to describe this thing. But at the time, especially when, the, when this, when this conversation came up uh, was when uh, the Google cardboard had come out and, and a lot of people were putting their phones in, in little boxes and, and testing VR out that way. And, um, or, and there were, of course, all the development kits out and a lot of hyper on VR, but a lot of, Mixed reviews of VR as well, just because of some of the, the diminished experiences people were, were having with it. And uh, we just didn't want to call it VR. So what else can we call it? What else, How else do we describe it? And that's a challenge because, especially at the time, even if we called it VR, not everybody would really understand what that meant, um, uh, let alone changing the name to something else. And I figured, look, if we're going to have to educate people anyway, we may as well educate them on onto something that's, that, that, that is closer to what we're doing. Uh, and I always thought um uh what's this baudrillard i think is his name uh the uh the the, the surreal sort of concept and the philosophy of, of hyperreality without a hyphen just one word
0: hyperreality of course i'm gonna i'm gonna it's in my next couple of questions
1: <laughs> oh okay okay well uh we can wait and, and hop into it then or i can hop into it now but it comes it, it like so it, there's there's that whole concept uh and uh but because i think uh, it's
0: virtual reality but an enhanced version of it yet hyper uh which i well that's
1: the thing right is 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 that it i mean the the the, the people often say oh it's just it's virtual reality but with more more immersion more you know it's just beyond hyper reality and a step further beyond hyper reality. i'm okay with that definition the definition i would give and, and have given over the years is um the practical illusion of an impossible reality so convincing that the mind accepts it as reality itself Exactly. Um uh, that's a deep sense of presence brought about by an abundance of immersion in the uh is the ultimate purpose of the medium. I think I'm getting that right. So pure magic and make-belief. I mean, that's honestly it's like if you could make a magic trick and step inside of it and then just be inside that magic trick, like somehow living magic, then then that's that's the goal. Uh and while VR is the tool we use to create that goal and to get people to that place, it's not
0: necessarily required. For it. Yeah. So let's talk about philosophy now, if you will, because you mentioned hyperreality in one word. And yeah. the gear we are using during the experience was named rapture, which is an eschatological position held by some Christians, particularly those of American evangel- evangelicalism, consisting of an end time event when all Christian believers who are alive, along with resurrected believers. While your hyper-reality concept is a term coined by French philosopher Jean Baudrillard in semiotics and postmodernism defined as an inability of consciousness to distinguish reality from a situation, a simulation rather, of reality, especially in technologically advanced postmodern societies. So what messages are you trying to convey here with these specific terms?
1: Um...
0: That's funny. I know. I
1: know there's. Uh, I'm, I've no doubt there's philosophy majors that that would take great issue with me, even sort of trying to cash in on uh, on uh, the, the hyperreality term. But originally, that wasn't that wasn't kind of the intent, which isn't say we didn't like watch the matrix and go, oh, yeah, like uh, <laughs> simulacra and whatever, you know, we're like, oh, that's we should, you know. We should, we should, we should hop on that train. Uh, it was more just, Hey, this is beyond reality. What What's the term for that? Um, and reality kind of fit. Uh, but the fact, uh, you know, when, when, you, when, uh, when Baudrillard, and I don't, I can't, I don't know the correct French pronunciation That I'll have to defer to you, but uh, when he talks about uh, the inability of, of the conscious mind to distinguish a simulation of reality from reality and 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 things like making copies of things that never existed and all of that like i, I love all that i find it fascinating you like I, I do think there's a uh, yeah there's a and there's a parallel uh there for sure um i mean he even talks about uh disneyland and main street and uh other places as being copies of things that never really existed and uh, rightly so um i think in my book I, I talk about santa claus as being a very similar concept you know i work very hard on christmas eve to make santa claus seem real even though he never existed and uh, spoiler alert for any kids listening uh and uh, uh but i work really hard at that trying to make that uh magic happen uh so there's a there's a there's some interesting parallel lines there um and uh when when it comes to like the rapture gear uh you know, I, Ken is the one that came up with the name for that, and and would be, uh, uh, and and Ken's awesome, honestly, at naming stuff. Like I always uh, I always loved Ken's names for things. And uh, the Rapture Gear was probably more just in, uh, in line with the idea that the gear could bring about a rapturous like feeling, as opposed to uh, an event or uh, you know some uh, crossing over of Christian beliefs, but uh that's that's kind of how i understood it
0: so it's more the experience of leaving our bodies and living right, exactly. something a simulation of another life basically yeah. just like the metaverse basically it was the metaverse yeah. before the metaverse it's the metaverse before the metaverse right yeah
1: exactly well and after the metaverse technically well you know <laughs> depends, depending on where you where you count
0: yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if you are one of the major influences. The void is among many influences behind the metaverse because I was really feeling like I was delving into another dimension when I was experiencing the void. And roaming freely and interacting with the physical world and matches the digital one um, You know, we are seeing, all with untethered technologies, is an accomplishment that to the best of my knowledge hasn't been surpassed yet. Thank you. And yeah. and of course, and how did you work with the technology to you at the time to make it happen? I also want to remind you that it was before the meta quests of today, because untethered VR at the time was 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 like Bluetooth back in the, in the 90s, you know? Right. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, well, we always wanted to be untethered and but it wasn't being done. And so I, obviously I talked a bunch about this earlier about making, having to make that backtop computer and the challenges that were involved there. Uh, and, but, but it wasn't, it wasn't, it was never an option for us. We knew it had to be uh, tetherless and, and free roam because that's the, again, that was the only way we could have all the walls that we wanted to have and, and have people moving the way we wanted to without things getting tangled and mixed up. Uh, so that was always, that was always on the table, but, but yeah, it was a technical challenge to make it, make it work correctly. Um, and it's the same technical challenge that after us everyone kind of faced as well. as, is you know the, with Dreamscape Sandbox, everybody like they they run into the same issues. Like okay, we have to use these backtop computers, but we all don't want to. You know the goal is to minimize the technology as much as possible. Uh, if we're up to us, uh, and I, I I'm I guess trying to speak for the whole industry here, but uh, I'm pretty sure we all agree that if we're up to us, people would just walk in and they wouldn't be wearing anything. Just again like a holiday. So uh, it's like using technology to try and get to that ultimate goal of diminishing the technology is is the is is that balance that we're in.
0: That's uh, interesting. It, yeah,
1: yeah. It's it's a it's a funny little um uh, yeah, funny little uh, uh balance metaphor to, metaphor. To, yeah, metaphor or like maybe it's like a
0: funny uh, irony. Yeah, I don't know because it's you 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 you're
1: you're using you're trying to use more and more technology to get rid of the technology.
0: Yeah, it's true and I honestly feel that I was not wearing anything with me. And you know we're wearing a backpack which is basically the computer, we're having a gun, we're having whatever we need to use and a headset. It's kind of yeah. cumbersome if you think about it, but not cumbersome at the same time because it's so immersive that I for I was forgetting that I was wearing it, which is quite an accomplishment in and of itself, you know
1: yeah and that was always our biggest fear is that that people wouldn't let go of it. but yeah people uh, it was almost universal. would go in and 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 within seconds forget that they to the point where something scary would happen and you know people would like put their hands I, I like you know you'd see kids or 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 uh, teenagers or what I like, just they'd like put their hands over their eyes like they were gonna like close their eyes by but they're putting it on the headset. and so of course, nothing would happen. and they'd forget that you could just tilt it up. i mean we we' built these special designed headsets that. The front's actually tilted up so you could just see oh. out at any time.
0: And so at any moment they could just flip it up. And... Yeah, I have friends who actually took off their headset to look around. I didn't want to be taken out of the You
1: didn't want to be taken out of it which no, I, no, no, I, I didn't respect.
0: want to I definitely respect. And and uh, how did you do, you know, to make us take elevators and go in other rooms and stuff like that? How does it work? Because the whole perimeter of the void is not that big, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You know, we the biggest question we often have when people would come out is like, so how big is it back there? Because it, it's, they can't tell. Um, and uh, it's just not that big. We kind of keep it uh, just sort of a secret exactly how big it is. But you can, most locations have more than one what we call stage in them. And a stage is just literally the the physical setting with the walls and props and things that an experience required. And uh, people would go and when they, when guests would go in, uh, you know, we had uh, transducers everywhere. We had fans everywhere. Yeah. And we tried to make the, the space and the stages diverse as we could. So we wouldn't have to move effects uh, between experiences or anything like that. We just had a big diverse array of effects. And um, when they'd reach a certain part of the, of the experience and we wanted an elevator there, then we could shake that part of the floor and we would send them up to a different level. Um, which gets into Vection and, uh, you know, we definitely learned a lot about how to make people feel like they were moving when they weren't moving. I was so um,
0: believable.
1: It, it really, it really is. And it, I love it. Like we've had, we've had so many experiences. Um, I've got a video of it, of of a guy that we just kind of brought in off the street and uh, we put him in the void gear and we put him in an experience, a uh, really early experience uh, where he walked into one, Room and then he walked into another chamber and then up an elevator, and then back over that room, and you could see kind of a window down into the space he was before. And uh he he goes up and and he was nervous, you know, as he's walking around because he didn't he really thought that he went up. Oh yeah. And it took him it it took him a minute because we were instantly up there with him, right? To to be like, wait, like you're is this am I in the same place? Like it was just you it it was really hard for him to wrap his head around because the motion really feels like motion and it simulates uh, the
0: g-force that, of when you're taking an elevator
1: well and that's the thing is that when an elevator uh, that's the great thing about elevators in vr is most elevators you're they're so slow and they have such a smooth curve of animation and because they're dealing with the uh with a vertical motion it's really hard to to just sense any kind of pressure or g-force when you're moving there um uh unless it's really going fast but most yeah. elevators you know they they increase in speed and then decrease in speed uh so elevators are great. The big key was those transducers and vibrating the feet and creating, you know, jostling uh, your uh, your skin and just getting getting your other senses again, sensory concordance to agree with what your eyes are seeing. And so you get uh, so while your inner ear is saying I don't know if I'm moving or not, uh, you can say that about just about any elevator. Uh, but your your skin, so your vestibular system might be saying no, but your somatosensory system is saying no, I can feel that we're moving. And then your eyes are saying, no, I can see that we're moving. Then you can have audio cues be going uh, across and down and panning uh, uh, vertically in front of you and, and creating that sort of auditory illusion. And so your other sensors are saying, no, we're definitely moving. And uh, when you have enough sensory concordance, anything that's discordant sort of falls away. And so that was sort of one of the big. Secrets was, we just got really good at trying to, at, at sensory concordance and making sure that you, that all your senses agreed, even if nothing was happening in the real world, the illusion was completely sold in that, in that inner reality.
0: Of course. And a lot of people to train, you know, to, and to, to maintain that concordance, like you say, like moving walls or making sure that everything vibrates.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously, uh, so there's a lot of uh kind of, proprietary knowledge and things about how we would go about all of that. Um, but uh, a lot of that went, came down to our engineers and how great they were at, at making sure everything could be uh, properly automated and, and and done in a way that uh, that synced everything correctly.
0: Yeah. Did you approach your VR experience as a video game, an interactive movie or something else entirely?
1: Um, it was uh so it's it's really just a cross combination i mean if i'm being a little reductive of, of saying it's a movie where you're a character in the movie and uh a video game where you're a character in the video game and then uh sort of trying to cross the those those two things in 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 certain ways you know i've, I've had people come to me and say ah oh, you guys like to talk about hyper reality and making it its own platform but really it's just you're inside a video game right and i'm like your respect actor.
0: Yes, this is where my concept is from.
1: Yeah, is this, this kind of concept of of the the guest living in the experience and making sort of story decisions?
0: Exactly. It, well, yeah. i exactly. And when I experienced it, this is I was like, this is this is exactly what I was looking for. Mm. This is the ultimate spect actorship experience. I cannot believe I'm living it. So like yeah, I love that to respect actor. I think that's great. Yeah. And uh that's what my dissertation is about. And um so the scope of my research covers VR experiences that do not try to influence the users with predetermined choices. So the latter, the this, this, this user attach importance to the user's intentions. Um, I mean, being captured. And I believe these factors provide to the users direct participation, involvement, and pleasure, as subjective as it is, of course, in the narrative when there is one. So the video games that inspired my concept, uh, aside of yours, The the Void, are titles such as Heavy Rain, uh, Detroit Become Human, I don't know if you're familiar with them, where your choices influence the course of the narrative. So your choices will even influence the ending of the game. And there are several, you know, possible endings to the story of Heavy Rain, for example. I think there are 17. And this helped me frame my main research object, the Spectator, which I believe is at the center of your experience. So now, now, my question is, do you think more narrative freedom, like in Heavy Rain, what I just gave you as an example, mm-hmm. where you can influence the course of the story instead of being guided in a predetermined narrative, would have affected the void positively or ne- negatively?
1: Um, our goal was always to try to have an open narrative uh, yeah, structure. Um, and, uh, but it's uh, when you do more of an open and that's, and that's, so there's this giant stage we call the infinite stage and it was originally designed for that purpose that you could have uh, sort of uh, these more open narrative structures still, you know, sort of branching tree narratives is exactly. probably closer to, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but we were always uh, making that giant stage and and trying to get the throughput numbers that the business was looking for and trying to fit it in places the business wanted to uh, was a challenge and uh, and so we kind of ended up with a much much smaller stage about the quarter size of of uh, of that bigger stage and uh, having to be a little more linear with it, is, and and the way things were priced. I mean, honestly, it came down to to, to a business decision of saying, "Oh, we're gonna have to be a little more, um, much more linear in this than than we would like to." Um, in Nicodemus, there's more than one ending, and in various experiences, there's there's multiple decisions that the guests can make that will change the flow of the narrative, but not the the arc of the narrative. And I I tend to break these two things up with um, uh. So there's, um, oh gosh, what do I call them? You got to remember what I called them in the book. Uh, well, there, okay, there's story affordances. So there's, there's objective story affordances and uh, subjective story affordances. Yeah. And objective story affordances are decisions that the guest can have that'll actually affect the objective story, the overall story. They'll actually change the flow and the tree of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the subjective story affordances are things that change how you experience the story uh but don't change the overall story itself because they're sort of the subjective parts of the story yeah and and they include everything from yeah they include everything from uh uh what you say to your friends right in 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 the experience it's like the dialogue of the experience changes every time we put people through it because people say different things every time uh as well as um maybe how many stormtroopers you shoot or which way you get into the vault now you're still gonna have to get into the vault you're still gonna have to face vader but how exactly did you break into the vault? Did you shoot the console and 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 to open the door? Uh, did you ignore it entirely and just shoot Stormtroopers until K2SO figured it out? Or did you actually do what K2SO asked you to do and do sort of that Simon follow uh, the code uh, mechanic and crack the door, uh, the code for the door? Uh, so you had three ways to get in and which way you got in was up to up to you. But ultimately, again, the objective overall story doesn't change, uh, and that core narrative is, is is the same. Uh, and so, uh, but our goal was always to try and 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 give more decision and and to put more objective story affordances into experiences than than what we'd had. And it kind of came down to to time and money. And uh, you know, one of the goals of Void 2.0 is is to be able to explore that more once again and and look once again at. Uh, at those objective story affordances and getting people to live in uh adventures that are non-linear and uh, i'm i'm
0: excited (laughs) oh gosh and uh, i tried i i unfortunately i didn't have to try all of the experiences uh but what experiences did have these sort of like branch storytellings like branch narratives
1: so Nicodemus is the biggest, is the one that had the biggest uh, uh, stuff in it. Because there were, there were, depending on how you entered the experience, um, there was a passive objective story affordance where you're you you you're not consciously making a decision, but it's a decision that actually affects certain rooms you'll be in that other people won't see. Um, I didn't do Nicodemus, there's...
0: unfortunately. So Nicodemus, oh,
1: I know, it's like, it's my best yeah. example is that one, which uh, I love Nicodemus because it was our own IP and it was our, it it was, our, yeah. our swing and had the most illusions in it of, of any of our experiences. Ah. Uh, so if you're ever in Utah, I'll put you through, uh, so you can in Utah? come down. Yeah. Ah, yeah I would love that. We'll, we'll take you through that one, but it's, uh, yeah. It, so that it was a great one it, with, with the Disney properties. Um, it got a little trickier cause I, I, especially like with star Wars, I remember we we had a big debate as to whether or not, uh, uh, we, we you can save Athe, Athex I think is his name. The guy, the, the stormtrooper that dies at the end. There, uh, he is like, can you save him? Can you not? Like, what do we, what do we do? And we had sort of a contradicting law. I call them laws. There's 52 void laws or 52 laws of uh hyper reality. Hmm. Uh, that we would try and use as guidelines to help us work with partners so that we are all, all kind of on the same page.
0: That's so interesting. Is it included in your book?
1: it is yeah in fact the book is almost based around uh those those laws wow um and uh if you go uh so when you go there's they're broken up into four different sections of 13 each there's 52 of them because of a deck of cards i just needed to pick a number and 10 was too little
0: very clever uh, for a magician
1: Right. it makes sense yeah <laughs> uh and uh there's guest laws magic laws uh Story laws and world laws, and um, you would we would be able to in, in 13-inch category, we would sort of use those as a, as, as guidelines for the experience design. And uh, with with uh, Secrets of the Empire, one of them was one of the laws is obviously that uh, uh, we want it to be uh, canon. We want the experiences to be as real as possible, to the point where people leave and say, "I got to live a Star Wars movie." not oh i got to live in a video game or a version or something that was tangential and didn't count like the story counts is is what the is the law the story counts so we would always try and get the original actors and most of the time we did which is yes. awesome and I, you know when you're when you're in there with uh k2so you know that's alan tudic he's actually doing the animations and doing the voice and it's him you're with um when you're really- in uh, avengers you're in there with Benedict Cumberbatch. It's literally him uh, doing the motion capture and the voice and everything else. And thank goodness, because I'd be like, of anyone, I'd be like, that's you know if that's Benedict or not. I think it wouldn't have I, been the
0: same, honestly. It would have been would as have been immersive.
1: T- or exactly, exactly. Uh, and so the story counts. We use all the all the original talent we possibly can. Use all the original assets that we possibly can, and make the story canon. Now, did we always get that canonized like seal of approval? No. Uh, you know, uh, but, uh, because a lot of places don't even like to use the term canon because they get nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, but, uh, they were as authentic as we could possibly make them. And that's, that's, I'm very
0: proud of that. So I feel like, uh, first of all, these, um, branched narratives, I feel like it was very seamless because I didn't have the sense that I was making choices myself that would influence when I was going. So that's very innovative. Well,
1: well, yeah, that's the thing is that like there's 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 active ways to do it and passive ways to do it. And I think a lot of people focus on the active ways of making uh, objective story affordances and like most of our stories. This is what I was saying before is like with Athex, ultimately we decided not to make that an ult- alternate ending because they wanted it to, to be canon. We wanted it to be an official Star Wars story, and they needed a way for future to in the for future stories to look back on that event and know how it ended. Right? Because it couldn't be Schrodinger's cat. It couldn't be both things at once. It had to be either he dies or doesn't die. And so ultimately we they they opted to just make the objective story very uh standardized so that way it could be plugged into plugged into the canon of Star Wars. Um and uh and Oh, so it so had fit
0: and, in the uh, canon of Star Wars. That's interesting. Okay.
1: Well, and that's, I mean, and again, does it still? I don't know, but it did at the time. <laughs> they were very. Well, that's how uh, you get
0: for working with big intellectual properties. You know, yeah, it has to absolutely a mold.
1: Has to fit and the yeah. in, into their into their structure and into their mold. Uh, it was great. Like I love that. Like I, I'm happy to to have been a part of that. Uh, but uh, uh, but yeah, so that was that was the trick there with with Star Wars was was how do you make sure that the story not only counts but is is a certain way moving forward with uh with other stories um like in nicodemus Mm -hmm. uh there's there's uh like i say passive and and uh uh active story affordances and the passive affordances are things like they're not active decisions you make but by your actions uh can still be caused so for example uh walking into a room and deciding if there's maybe there's two doors it's like i can go through the left door the right door and uh if you go through the right door like that's a decision that would be like that would be active but if you walked into a room and you had to uh i don't know let's just say solve a puzzle and you didn't solve the puzzle or you had to do a mini game like in that room whatever that game or maybe it's maybe it's shooting bad guys or maybe it's playing poker with some old west dudes whatever uh the outcome of that game then determines the path and so you didn't actively say well i want to go down path a or path b um, but by your actions you indirectly affected what was going to happen uh, nice. in the narrative and that's it's those passive ones that I find really fascinating because uh, a lot of life is that way uh,
0: yeah you just you, do things
1: yeah it's not like the game of life where it's like do you want to be a millionaire or you know here's two careers you know and and, and and no we just kind of do things and and yeah some things we get to say oh you know I'm going to work hard and I'm going to become an artist or whatever but uh you know a lot of times just opportunities present themselves and you happen to be in the right place at the right time and then you happen to act a certain way during that time and that happened to you know and, and sort of these these colliding events that that kind of help shape your life and so I find I find those passive uh story affordances to be to be interesting and there's and there's subjective versions of those and objective versions of those but uh, uh they're they're yeah, I love. I don't. Know, I I find those things when it comes to crafting uh, experiences to be to be interesting and
0: and challenging. It's time. fascinating. What do you consider to be a successful VR experience? Like, how much freedom or of action or agency do you think a VR experience should have to be considered as a successful one?
1: Um. Yeah. So I I in the book I break down and I do this at the void, but we we would have I had this sort of spectrum. And on the far left, uh, I had, uh, it was based off of an idea uh, around a a theory around some of Hitchcock's work that, uh, 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 but the core concept is the idea that you can have a role as a witness. um, Or you can, uh, on the other side of the spectrum, you can have the role as a killer. If you're a witness, you're just passively witnessing the events. The story doesn't even acknowledge or need to know you're there for you to witness the event. So second person. Um, what's that?
0: Second person perspective, you know, first person. Yeah, it's
1: expert. like second person perspective. Exactly. Uh, to be and then there's after, the next step above that is what is is the victim, which is the story is aware of your presence and therefore they can affect you, but you can't actually affect it. Uh, and so you're able to. Uh, witness the story and feel the story and be acted upon by the story. This is like walking through a haunted house, right? The people are like, don't touch the the actors. And then you get in there and they're like poking you with stuff and, and all you can do is run. Um, and so you become a, a victim of the experience. Uh, and, uh, and then when you take a step above that, uh, then there's the sleuth, uh, which is you're acting on the story, but the story isn't aware of you. Uh, and then the step above that is the, is the killer where you're acting on the story and the story is acting on you. And, uh, that's kind of the most immersive one is where you're actually making decisions in the story. You're part of the story and the story is aware of you and everyone's aware of everyone, right? Exactly. Uh, it's the real life kind of thing. Uh, Well,
0: this is exactly my concept. Awesome. Awesome. (laughs) This is exactly what I'm working on and what I want to see. And I feel like this is actually happening. Thank you for. For um, bringing me, bringing basically to the public what we want in virtual reality. Because, you know, if you put a headset on a grandmother's head, if you strap it on her head, she doesn't know how to handle, you know, controllers and things like that. It's going to be overwhelming. But if it's just move the way you do, act the way you do in everyday, in your everyday life, then it's going to become seamless. And then she's going to see something underground, like witnessing a murder, and looking around and seeing things, and just oh, there's a gun on the floor. Or, there's something that I can take and look at it. You're just going to naturally do it, you know. Yeah. So that to me is spectactorship.
1: Yep. Yeah, that's that, and that was the that's the that's the always ultimate goal is to push people toward that is to push yeah. people toward that spectactorship,
0: like exactly. you
1: say, is to get people to that place. Now. Sometimes you have to make compromises. And for the sake of, of the of the shared narrative that you're building with the guests, I call that story building. Again, I talk about this in the book, but it's, it's all about uh, uh, working with the guest, because you need to help shape the narrative. Because if you just leave them to their own devices, anything can happen. That's real life. But well, we're not trying to do that. We're trying to create a really cool story that they're going to live in. Uh, so they affect the story with you and uh that so i call that story building and it's this concept that, that you two are together making a story uh and that ultimately of course the guests should come out and tell their story and feel like it's their story they don't know that they that they were part of the author's story uh, but but that is how it's constructed and um uh and so that's kind of to me like like that's how i look at, at story design is through that lens and I think that you can be sometimes a witness in a, in, a, in an experience in one moment. And then a few beats later, now you are uh, a victim. And then a few beats later, now you're acting in, in that role of a killer where you're actually affecting the story and it's affecting you. And then you drop back down to here. And so you can kind of ebb and flow your position or character within an experience, depending on the needs of the narrative.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: ultimately, like I would just love something where you go in and, and for the most part, you're just hanging out in that, that far end and, and affecting the story as much as possible while still having, you know, that's, that's, that's the, like the gold standard. That's the star that I kind of aim toward.
0: Of course. And some researchers have argued that immersion is a psychological state of mind, you know, reflecting the degree in which users believe they are present in a virtual environment. But however, most scholars describe immersion as a characteristic characteristic of the medium or a product of that medium, like uh, media or its products can be more or less immersive uh, leading to a corresponding sense of immersion among its users. While taking the statement into account, how did you design and or approach presence, flow, and immersion during the making of your experience? You know, whereas flow can be defined as immersion or involvement in, a, in an activity like a gaming action, presence rather refers to a sense of spatial immersion in a mediated environment. Mm.
1: Um I don't know if this is going to answer your question or not, but no problem. One of the things yeah, okay. One of the things we would focus on and really try is is to give people um let people play in the space the way they wanted to play. Yeah. So when it comes to immersion, that's we're just all in on that as much as we can and still be financially viable. Like it's we we still today it's the most immersive thing and the you know the standard there was in, in VR um because we build all the walls all the furniture all the props that we could and and, and do everything we could to, to make the environment uh itself as far as physical presence is concerned um now there's of course terms like emotional presence and uh and and other types of presence that you could that we can talk about that play more into story design and the flow of, of the narrative but Uh, ultimately, like we were really concerned about physical presence. Like if you feel like you're there, then we're more than halfway through the battle and and some of these other things would be easier to fall into place. Um, when it comes to, uh, things like flow and getting people like in mentally into the experience, uh, that's where we would give a little more leeway and say, well, what kind of person are you? Uh, and, and we would always make sure people went in as groups. Uh, very few people went in singly through the void, uh. The goal was, is and it was designed, every experience was designed to be played with others. Um, and that helps with this second aspect because now two people can go in and you know, if one of them is, uh, you know, more outgoing, more adventurous than the other one, then that person might go first and try and solve things first. Whether well, everyone wants to sit back and kind of have a more passive role and then and interact. And I think a cooperative
0: mode in. when you're interacting with your friends and colleagues while in the experience, I think it's more immersive.
1: Right, exactly. So there's a social immersion that happens there as well. Yeah. And again, being physically there with people, uh, you know, it, again, it breaks against like, well, with VR, you could just be in, I could be in my house, you could be in your house, and then we could be together in a virtual world. But yeah, but then the second I try to high-five you, it all falls apart. But then that social presence gets broken. But if you're if you're literally physically in, the, in there and we're representing your hands and uh, tracking you in the space, and then I can high-five you, and all of a sudden that social uh, presence becomes that much more real because there's a, already a barrier. The VR creates the barrier and we need to break that again
0: by reinstating it's funny. physical presence. It's funny you're saying this because I remember we were four or five. I think we were four and we all f- high-fived in VR in the void. And it was, uh, VR high-fives are the best. They're the best. <laughs> in the Star Wars <laughs> environment, it was amazing. All the rest of stormtroopers, high-fiving was the best thing ever. Nice. Yeah, it is. It's awesome. It, it really is. is. and And we wouldn't, that
1: was another rule we had, again, trying to diminish the technology uh, as much as we could, as, as we would use uh, hand tracking. And we were some of the first to do that in LBE environment. So, I mean, uh, just optical hand tracking. And so we never had people put stuff on their wrists or put things on their feet or anything like that. Because it was, exactly again, trying to minimize that as much as possible.
0: And it helped a lot uh, with the comfort. It was very, the comfort in, in your experience was very present and very effective thanks yeah yeah no, we're proud of that even even like the suit
1: up we we really worked hard on to make it as easy as possible for people to just step into the best and then you pull a couple straps and then and they're ready to go uh sure. so we uh worked hard on that and I, i'm still i still like it a lot um of course so, so yeah but i i so ultimately it's like how into the narrative or how much you want to participate into the different sections of the story is up to you and then we would try and break the the experience up into into parts that were diverse. So that uh, all right, here's going to be a an active adventure event that's a little more intense. But then the next thing that might happen is something that's more uh that's more cerebral and is is something that you're gonna have to try and, and use your mind to get through or to understand to, to, to help pass. And and so maybe that's the kind of person that's how you want to play is in a story like that. Or maybe you want to play in a in a world that's that. And so so we would have these sort of different events and, and experiences that would play to different play styles of a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the goal of that being ultimately, of course, is that uh, once you once you get into the thing you want, uh, uh, the kind of experience you want to have, then that's that just adds that much more to, to the immersive nature of the experience itself because you have entered into that kind of flow and you've entered into the, that sort of mental state of, of being there because you're there to solve a thing and again none of it exists but yeah it adds that layer
0: and i am curious you know uh when we met you we talked about um different intellectual properties and i was wondering uh about the creative process and collaboration with these intellectual properties you mentioned ivan ritman The how is it working with these people that are heavily involved with these intellectual properties and also in the writing of the narrative and everything yeah, it's interesting. Um,
1: you know, the the Hollywood answer is for me to say is awesome working with everybody all the time. Uh, like that's the that's the I want to keep working in Hollywood answer, and everyone was great. And honestly, for the most part, a lot of people were great. And I was actually almost surprised, to be honest. Like when I started when we started working with studios, uh, how nice and open and and creatively. Uh, uh, willing they were how willing they were to to share in the creative and to work with you as opposed to uh, you know just to shut you out and so for the most part that was that was true like it was great um but there's there's always instances where uh, creatively you kind of have to butt heads or uh argue and and uh, you know they always say there's no motion without friction and there were definitely lots of friction at times but uh, that's just because everybody wants the best thing and uh and so we would do our best i just where the only times it really bothered me was 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 uh when we would say we would take all of our void experience and say this is the right thing to do and they'd say well no this is the right thing to do and it's like well what what are why are you saying that like what what experience in vr and and reality do you have that that backs that up other than your head just saying you that that's right because we have all this evidence that's saying you're wrong and we need to do this thing and 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 so, you know, every now and then we weren't, I think, as respected as uh, as as the experts we are in that specific field. And that's the only time I was like, well, look, no, when it comes to this specific thing, when it comes to hyper reality, you you really should take our advice because uh of course, you know, people could get hurt. I mean, like there's 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 problems that can arise if if you don't. And uh but for the most part it, it was it was awesome. And uh you would tend to you know, we had a we had a full-time writer, Tracy Hickman, uh who's a uh, New York Times. 14 times bestselling author and, um, uh, uh, a game designer and also, of course, my father. Uh, but he, uh, which is, which is how I got him. Right. Like, you know, um, but, uh, you know, so he would, he would kind of do early drafts of the scripts they'd go to the studios and then the studios would come back or the studio would write a draft of the script and they'd come back to Tracy. Then he'd go over it and, uh, we'd meet with Tracy and, uh, I would go, onto the stage and and walk through it or we'd have a white box or a gray box that we'd go through and so we just used all these different techniques kind of in tandem with each other in order to try and shape the experiences that we were that we were
0: creating um they worked worked really well by the end i think we got really uh really good at it of course absolutely so your theme parks were located inside rec rooms like ours in canada they were in, literally inside a places called the rec room uh yeah. like uh in shopping malls as well and I also remember that one like you mentioned previously that opened in the Madame Tussauds Museum in New York City so why choosing these specific types of location how and how important is location to you
1: I can't speak too much to the side of it I I really was on the creative side as far as experience design I had my own opinions uh about where we should be um my opinions were things like I don't think we should ever be in a
0: mall Mm -hmm.
1: um uh and I think there's some evidence to back that up, but, uh, it also wasn't my job, honestly, to, I, you know, other than to give my opinion, it wasn't my job to to determine where we would go and, 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 uh, you know, I, I had enough on my plate for most of the time. So I, uh, you know, it's one of those things that, that, uh, uh, we had some great locations and we had some terrible locations and we had some so-so locations and I feel like, um, we were figuring out more and more as time went on what the good locations would be. Uh, but like I said, well, there was a lot of, there's some, there's definitely some disagreement behind the scenes as to to where we should go and um, what was the best approach. I still, to this day, I like the approach of uh, being a destination more than trying to go to the public, having the public come to you. Like that's, that's, that was always kind of my stance. Um, uh, but There's a big risk in in doing that. And I understand Um you know, but I agree with your um,
0: idea. My assessment, yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate uh, that. especially what what we have here at the rec room, it was a great thing because people go there to have fun, so you just naturally go there, and it's not too far from a movie theater, so everything makes sense. And since the rec room is owned by Cineplex here, everything is just correlated. You know, everything makes sense, and it was very very well put together, very accessible. So I actually I can talk for folks in the US, but from our standpoint here everything made sense. So I think it was a good decision. So what are some of the biggest challenges in the design of a VR project like yours? More precisely, which ones did you have to overcome during production, development, everything? Sorry, could you repeat that? Yeah, uh, I'm just saying, what are some of the biggest challenges in the design of a VR project like yours? And more precisely, which ones did you have to overcome during production or development?
1: Oh gosh. Playtesting was always fun. Uh never knowing if guests were gonna behave the way you thought they would in an experience. And uh, every time we'd learn something new that we just didn't foresee. Uh um and that was always that was always interesting, was was overcoming those challenges. Some sometimes they were small, no big deal. Um often there was like, well, we gotta redo that whole room, you know, or, or that whole event space because it just wasn't working. Um but that that was great. We used to our our uh our large void building had a, a balcony that would overlook a stage, and so you could literally just sit up there and watch the the, the people go through and kind of take notes on what they were doing from this eagle eyes sort of bird nest. Ah, that's cool. I wish uh, I could it was great. That. <laughs> that was awesome. Uh, we learned a lot from doing that for sure. Um, yeah, I, you know, I don't. You I mean honestly? So playtesting was a big one. Uh, the the gray boxing and 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 just being able to step into the for the first time and walk around and seeing how things fit together. And being able to play it over and over again was always a big deal. You know, when uh, when, when studios today, especially animation studios, and and um, I mean, I think might have been Pixar that popularized this idea, but was of, of hey, we're going to make the film in its roughest draft as soon as possible and get people to watch it and take feedback on it. And then we're going to make another draft and then another draft and then another draft and then another draft until the movie is like gold because we've sh- already shown the movie so many times, gotten so much feedback on it at every stage miraculous. of production yeah um and that's just a, you know it's a great way to make a movie is uh, especially when it comes to a generated film uh like with animation because uh, by the time you're done you know you've got a pretty good product um and uh and it was like a lot like that with the void because we would have you know we do play tests all the way through we do you know we'd have people look at it in early stages and and later stages and uh we just refine it and refine it and refine it and keep going through it until it, we we got it to a place where we're like, okay, this is it's gonna we feel pretty confident about releasing this because we've already shown it so much and worked so much on it that uh there's not gonna be a ton of surprises at the time. Yeah, it was well
0: geared, definitely. Yeah. Um so it was of course with great regrets I learned void closed its doors during COVID-19 uh in 2020. And however, the website is still accessible. So are you currently working on a comeback you mentioned the Void 2.0 and yeah what, what yeah okay tell me more and <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> what was the second part of the question before I tell you more the second part was what lessons did you learn from the closure during the pandemic and how the Void might adapt to future challenges
1: oh three part question i love all right uh let's see so uh, well, yes. So we're trying to bring the void back. Uh, and uh, we, we have home offices here in Provo. And we've been working on on bringing it back. It's a matter of the usual fundraising and, and getting people excited about it again. And um, uh, so we're working, working away at it with a couple new ideas and with new technologies and things that'll make it even better than it was before, as I mentioned, uh, uh, you know, exploring uh, things with nonlinear narratives and and uh, ways of of kind of pushing the concept even further. Um, uh, so that's that's happening. Um, as far as uh, um, things we learned and what we do different in the future, um, uh, it's a big question. Uh, you know, we learned a lot about um, like a lot of there are a lot of business learnings definitely uh there's some um, uh kind of hard lessons that uh as far as cost versus return and amortization of of experience versus um uh versus the number of like locations you have open and um even small things like people coming out of the experience and kind of being on this endorphin high just to be like oh that was amazing and, you know, if it was a one stage location, it'd be like, great, see ya. And, and and you know, out the door they go. And there's, they, you know, even if they wanted to hang out, they couldn't or wanted to, you know, there's a small gift shop, but that was it as far as other ways to spend their money. And so we learned a lot about how to, uh, you know, all right, well, how do we, how do we just give the guests more of what they want? Uh, you know, how could, how could we have just one stage, but still have them maybe have another experience? How could we have, um, uh, how, how could we have, uh, a time for them to decompress or, or a way for them to uh, to do more of what they love or to have longer experiences or, or to really just provide more of that void experience. Um, and so, you know, on the product side, like, there's all of that. And on the business side, there's all the learnings from the the locations themselves or uh, giving people what they want versus their other options, entertainment options in a region. And there was a lot of learnings there. Um, so it's it's one of those things where we, we learned a ton and um, it's tempting, uh, when people, uh, they'll be like, oh, we, we need to change the whole product. And I'm like, well, I mean, you know, we had a really high NPS score and we had a, like, we had a really good product. So I, I'm open to like tooling with the product and enhancing it. But, uh, I also don't want to just start, you know, like selling clothes and becoming the void clothing store, right? Like, let's not change the whole product entirely. Like let's, uh, you know, uh, uh, a lot of our, a lot of our issues had more to do, I think with, um, uh, just locations and certain, certain deals and advertising concerns and constraints. And, and, and I don't know, there, there were a lot of mechanics and a lot of things wrong. And, uh, I think hitting the gas too hard, uh, too soon. And, uh, there may have been an issue there. So I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's like, it's, it's a big, it's one of those big complicated questions, um, that, uh uh that really i like i could say a ton about but we don't have an extra hour to talk about it and
0: uh most of it's probably stuff that the powers that be don't really want me saying anyway of course and technical difficulties you know when um people are you know trying to access the thing but it's closed just for 30 minutes until they get stuff fixed are probably some things that happened i think it, it happened when i when there once, but it was quick, quickly solved. And I did, I think, three or four experiences at the void. Uh, not Nicodemus, unfortunately. Is uh, like that the one you didn't do? Did you do all of it? It is the uh, one I did not do, uh and I regret it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, will so you? Have, yeah, uh, I hope it's going to come back uh, in uh, um, as a whole, but also in Canada. I, uh, it was great, great time. And also great that the fact that you wouldn't get that VR fatigue, you know, cause you, if you stay there for more than 30 minutes, I never felt that. I felt like I wanted to stay <sighs> there and just wanted to do another one. And we did one right after the other. I remember cause it was so enthralling, you know?
1: Yeah. And that was the, that was the, one of the biggest surprises for all of us. We were like, ah, you know, originally like our first experience was like eight or nine minutes long. It was not mm-hmm. long at all. And, uh, and people came out and were like, well, it's got to be longer. And we're like, oh, all right. So the next experience we made, we made uh, like fifty percent longer. uh so it was the first one was eight minutes. Then we made one that was twelve minutes. And so people came out and were like, oh man, it's got to be longer. We're like, oh, okay. So we made I think we went up to fifteen minutes. So it got to be longer. And then we went up to twenty minutes. Yeah, almost twenty minutes uh, with Avengers. And people no. come out and say we still want it to be longer. And that's when I was like, you know, we just need to make something
0: really. I better. want a movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So you recently released the book "Hyper Reality: The Art of Designing Impossible Experience. Can you tell us a bit about it? So I wrote the book. Uh, I started the book during COVID. Uh, void closed down.
1: I, I we'd learned so much, and honestly, it's like one of those things where it's like, you know, wouldn't be cool if somebody that was in this very niche industry wrote a book about everything they'd learned and did it kind of fearlessly of just I'm not worried about you know like i'm excited i hope our competitors read the book like i think that'd be great yeah, they might not but i i, I really hope they do cuz there's a lot of good stuff in there i'm excited um and uh and and so uh, there was a lot of talk like oh should Curtis write the book or not you know i, I went round around with void 1.0 is is and, and but they were ultimately they were really cool about it like all right you can write it here's the things you can't talk about and they gave me kind of a list and said don't don't talk about these things cuz we're going to those that's proprietary um, but everything else you can talk about. And I said, awesome. And uh, so over the next uh, almost three years, I worked on a 400-page book that sort of details out our process of uh, designing for story and uh, our the concept of, of experience design within, with a, a special emphasis on illusion design inside of uh, virtual experiences. Uh, and so I, I go through and I classify out all of the... Uh, Uh, different illusions that that one can have there's two types of illusions when it comes to immersive experiences there's covert illusions and there's overt illusions the covert illusions those are illusions you don't even know are illusions these are the things we would do with space where it's like going up an elevator uh, and really feeling like you're going up an elevator in vr is not magic you're going up an elevator we do that every day in real life Uh, there's nothing magical about it but you're not because you're not actually going up an elevator and in the real world, you're just standing there. Uh, there is, uh, there's an illusion component to it. You just don't know that it's an illusion. So it's covert. Um, and so there's a whole set of covert illusions. One of which is, is immersive immersion itself. And, uh, uh, the, the illusion of, of, uh, feeling present, um, and so, so that, there's all those and then there's uh, the other section which is on over illusions and that's just like, hey, what, how do you make somebody feel like they're walking through a wall, because in VR we walk through walls all the time like it's no big deal there's not walls there. Uh, but how could you, how could you make them actually feel like you would do so I talked about that in the book like here's how you can make somebody feel like they 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 they're a ghost or they don't have any physical matter to them and, and really make it feel like they do. Um, uh, how do you make somebody levitate in VR and feel like they're levitating, or feel like someone else is levitating, or something else is floating?
0: So it's really um, a comprehensive volume about the magic behind it.
1: It really is, yeah. So it's really it's really about story and magic and um, how we would design story and especially on the interactive side of story design and story building, and then on magic. Uh, and that's and it's just a ton of info on that. But I wrote it in a way that I like. My goal was to write it in a way that it felt like you were uh that that, that it was just easy to read that you could actually just like sit down and just read it cover to cover and you didn't feel like you just trudged your way through a textbook but that it was actually like interesting to read and had tons of examples and practical ways of using information because that books that give you theory but don't give you technique I feel like are just uh, not valueless but just
0: hard to digest
1: yeah they're hard to digest and it's 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 like you're putting the work on me now to figure out how to translate the theory of into course. practicality and i i'd rather read a book that that gives that to me as well
0: i agree with you would you ever work on a non-location-based vr experience like some, some uh, that we find in the meta store or
1: yeah like uh so a non a non-location-based vr experience i would um i uh i i haven't ever released anything into uh, like uh onto the meta store anywhere else um uh but i, I totally would it's interesting because it's, it's a bit because again it's a bit of a different medium and so a lot of my strengths have to do with the physical the virtual side of things and and then you get into like all right now we're gonna put a box around those things and shove them aside and say all right you're just virtual now what can you do because i'm always like yeah but how do i take that virtual magic physical and i've honestly got a a lot of ideas on on what could be done there and I think some of them are really fascinating and there's been some really cool work that's been done in the community as well by by others um so I'm I'm not in a rush but but I, I guess that's a long way of saying yeah I've I've thought about it I've got some I've got some stuff brewing uh who knows if if someday I'll ever get to it would love to
0: now last question All what's right. next for Curtis Hickman
1: what is next for Curtis? I'm going to continue with Void 2.0 and helping them out and uh, working to, to, to get that back. I, too many people have come and been like, I never got to see this experience. I never got to see that experience. And um, with the advances in technology and the things that we know we could do, uh, it's just, it, it's worth taking a swing and and uh, bringing it back. So I'm, I'm happy to keep working on that. Uh, uh, a little bit of consulting and, uh, you know, ultimately... Um, uh, I've I've been taking some time to uh, explore a little bit more the, the practical side and physical side of magic again. I I still love performing, and uh, I I there is something about making that virtual experience happen using Ledger Domain that uh, is is wonderful. Uh, so I've been doing a little bit of that too lately. Um, and beyond that, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I the future is 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 wide open and
0: um uh, uh, you're just gonna let the magic ways. happen
1: we're just gonna let the magic happen that's right
0: curtis <laughs> thank you for making the impossible possible with the void uh and i hope we're going to see it again very soon and uh most importantly thank you very much for accepting the invitation it was a honor to have you on dr vr
1: oh it's very kind of you justin thank you so much for having me